Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Leftology podcast. Uh, today it is our host, or today with us is our host, Cameron and Patrick. And today we have a special guest, Joe Shepard. Hi, how are y'all doing? I'm doing good. good. How are you? Tired, but can't complain. <laughs> Working hard this week uh, for the launch? Oh, yeah, it's been insane. We, we did not expect that. I'll just put it that way. A lot bigger than you expected? Oh, yeah. Um, well, let's start off by doing a brief explanation of what uh, the Rural Democrats of America is, if I have the name right. It's uh, United Rural Democrats of America. Ah, slightly <laughs> off. Either way, um, we're the only one in, you know, kind of in this field, so um, we're kind of chill for whatever name you use, quite frankly. Uh, basically, um, so I am from Iowa. Um, I've worked on a couple campaigns in Iowa and Wisconsin. Um, and honestly, I've met with a lot of people who just feel sort of left out of the political equation. Maybe they voted for Trump out of spite or because they felt like he was the only person in decades who listened to them. And I think that, you know, a lot of rural and Rust Belt communities, they need reform. They need change. And while there is, you know, a definite social conservative flair to many of these communities, you know, the change that they need is simply not going to come from the Republican Party. And They've already had a chance. Most of these areas have been dominated by the GOP for a generation, if not more so. So that's basically kind of the premise of URD. The hope is because it is so hard to organize in rural areas due to a much smaller population density, that we can kind of create this much larger network wherein we can bring people in from other parts of either the state or the region of that state and try and create a much more um, strong coalition. So, so it's like a coalition to bring uh, rural voters back to the Democratic side? Uh, you could put it that way, yes. Um, truthfully, um, when it comes to you know, the, the concept of electoralism, I do think that you know, as of right now, that's the right way to do it um, because you know, we live in a two-party system. But um, you know, if we were more you know, equipped, if we had you know, a multi-million dollar budget, we would be open to doing some sort of like direct aid kind of thing in the future. Because I think that the fundamental issue here is that there are problems in these communities, most of which are way too large to be solved on the individual level. That's definitely true. Um, I, I do see a lot of the time that there are policies, or let me rephrase what I'm about to say. Like for a lot of these people, the reason they side with the GOP and the GOP's rhetoric is because they don't really get to see the benefits of having a government that like the Democrats usually won't because it is always in sometimes interlocked. Absolutely right. You're totally correct. I think it's partially that. And rural people I've noticed in general, whether they're you know extremely progressive or extremely conservative, there is this common binding factor that most of them simply do not want to be told what to do. And I do think that the Democratic Party, if they want to be you know successful in these areas, they have a very prescriptive vibe to them where they know what's best and they can sort of prescribe policies, make things better. Even if those policies are going to benefit people and if they are going to make people's lives better, they need to find a better way to express that. Otherwise, with that kind of tone of telling people what to do, people are just gonna shut their ears, so. What do you think uh, has like caused the feeling of being sick of the government telling you what to do in these rural areas? I think that's just sort of, you know, part of American history, part of how, you know, this country is formed, you know, in sort of an opposition to government overreach, if you want to look at it like that. So I think 
you know, because a lot of rural areas, you know, we have this sort of frontier spirit. A lot of these areas were settled not really by governments, but by people. They just sort of came out here and built communities. Um, I know obviously South Carolina has been colonized for a very long time, but out in Iowa, like most, most of the communities here um, are less than 200 years old, if not all of them. So, you know, because of that, I think that just, because I'm a political psych nerd, I think because of that sort of how these communities were formed, there will always be sort of a version, at least a little bit, to outside forces greater than them. It, it is definitely a part of the American uh, spirit, as I say, to just don't tell me what to do. I don't want to hear it. Exactly. Weren't uh, a lot of rural voters used to be Democrats back during uh, like mining and union days, right? Some yes, some no. Um, so, you know, during the time of like the, um, for this boom in, you know, mining conflicts in, you know, Kentucky and West Virginia in the 1930s, a lot of those areas did vote Republican. But I think that the reason that the Democrats sort of had a, well, in most states, a monopoly on rural voters until maybe two generations ago is because, um, you know, Democratic Party takes its roots from Thomas Jefferson, if you really go back that far, and his vision of sort of an agrarian America. So I feel like as long as that sort of Jeffersonian root was still strong, that Jefferson-Jackson root, I think that the Democratic Party was always going to have sort of an edge in rural areas. And, um, you know, as the parties changed in the 1930s to the 1990s, I feel like it was just sort of naturally going to flip. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of people bring up to the point that the parties aren't extremely different. That that doesn't really apply on a social front, but it can at least somewhat apply on an economic front where there is the, the more regulation of the Democratic Party and the more uh, free market of the Republican Party. They still do exist somewhat similarly. I mean, the way I've always seen, I've seen it recently with the Democratic Party is it is it appears to be different economically, but they always seem to concede to the Republicans anyway on that front. And they just kind of offer a different uh, social view. I think you're mostly right. I do think that there are, you know, some larger economic differences between the parties than that. But the problem is, at least in our time, many of these areas are almost dead zones for the Democratic Party. So a lot of the things that I say are very much theoretical, given both the technological advancements since, you know, the last great sort of spending in these areas, which would be, you know, either the Great Society of Johnson or the programs of FDR, depending on where we're talking. Uh, also, I think that there are people within the Democratic Party who do wish to sort of spend more in these areas and kind of rebuild them. But because the... Um, and I'm actually going on um, the hills rising to discuss this on Monday. Because we have such a hard time winning in these areas, these ideas cannot be implemented. So there's sort of this sort of sunk cost, like we don't want to try anymore. Do, do you, are, are the people in these areas like opposed to the economic? I'm assuming they're not opposed to like the economic investment. What do you think is the reason they're not voting for it? I'll tell you exactly why. And I guess I'll start with a little story because obviously you guys are both from this, both from the South. I'm from the, I can tell you, you know, if you look back even 30 years ago, a lot of the Democrats that were sent to Congress by Southerners were socially conservative and fiscally very liberal. 
Um, you have people like Howell Heflin, who I think fits that pretty well. Uh, you have others. I'm drawing a blank on currently. My apologies. Uh, but, we had Strawn Thurman in the Senate for like 70 years. Oh God. Fritz Hollings is another great example of what I'm talking about, where he was quite socially conservative, but he was willing to spend if needed. Um, I think that, you know, that is how you sort of can win rural areas. Um, although I do not advise it just because I think there are many drawbacks to social conservatism. Um, but I think, I think that's just basically the problem. Um, you know, we need to sort of expand. And because the Republican Party dominates in these areas, um, you know, they've sort of portrayed the Democrats as, as, you know, they're going to destroy your way of life and we're the last defenders of it. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of dog whistles I could put in right here, but I'm not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, we're not trying to get canceled yet. This is like our fifth episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally understand. And I think, you know, because of that, and because the Democratic Party has been removed from any of these areas for a generation or more, that, you know, that's, that's just lost ground. And that's why they don't vote for Democrats, because, you know, a lot of the voting base, all they know is Republican politics. And it's quite interesting, because you know, you look at these Democrats in the 1980s who were quite socially conservative. And then if you look at Democrats in the same region of, you know, the South who are Republican now, like Richard Shelby of Alabama um, is a good example of this where we flip parties. I think you can really find um, the propaganda working because you've gone from these areas where it's we're family values, but we still believe in economic, economic growth and spending to we're family values and also balancing the budget and, cutting, you know, the deficits or whatever you want to you know, phrase that as. So I think that, you know, that's, that's what's changed. I mean, after a while of having that, if we're talking like really rural, um, it does create a bubble effect because most of my dad's side of a family lives in a little small, not even probably couldn't qualify as like a hamlet. It's about like 200, 400 people. And most of the people who live there are my family members. So the only they don't really have a connection to like their neighbors as much as uh, somebody in like maybe the suburbs or the urban areas would. Mm -hmm. So it is, it does create like a bubble effect where the views they espouse are the same views as their brothers, their uncles and other things. And that's all they're hearing. And when they go on television, they're definitely not going to check a channel that just totally tells them their worldview is wrong. Yeah. I, yeah. Totally. I, I think it is a lot of, uh, a lot of rural people are very much still connected with traditionalism. And I think that is honestly like, it seems that like the Democratic Party is very much pushing forward the social progressivism, but not really being progressive enough on the economic front. And that's one of the reasons I've personally felt a little disillusioned with the party. And so I'm wondering if that's has some sort of similar effect in these rural areas. I think it's a little worse than that, actually, because I, I have a feeling, at least in the upper Midwest, where I'm much more familiar with the politics, I think it's been sort of like the Democrats have sort of ceded the area to the Republicans. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people who are registered Democrats as of right now in places like Iowa, uh, Nebraska, even like Minnesota, and they voted for Donald Trump. The reason they did was not because they necessarily liked his policies or even his style or any of that. A lot of the people I know who voted for Trump think he's a terrible person, but they view him as <laughs> who listens to them. 
And a lot of them came out in droves this election because they viewed him as literally their only advocate in government. So I think that one of the real problems is that, you know, after, you know, we had the farm crisis of the 80s, where a lot of these rural people sort of one last time gave their votes en masse to the Democratic Party, um, you know, in like 1988, 1992. And then after that, because it was clear that the Democrats were going to have, you know, repeated uphill battles in these communities, in these towns, in these states, just kind of stopped caring. I mean, I think there's also political socialization in the sense that, you know, 2010 is kind of like the last axe chop for Southern Democrats because, and also some states in the West, because a lot of the people who grew up when the Democratic Party was still the dominant party of the South are starting to die off and they are no longer being the, um, the um, kind of the dominant voting block of the region. So they'll vote, you know, straight line Democrat. And even if that's, you know, a right winger like Strom Thurmond or somebody like Doug Jones, they're just going to go straight ticket. And as those people die off, the Democrats have less and less reason to invest in these communities. So that's my take. I think it's interesting that you said that people connect with Donald Trump because I do see that a lot. And I, from what I found from talking to people around here is what people hate about the Democratic Party is that is this feeling of that everyone is this establishment Democrat, they're corrupt, they're out of touch billionaires, and then they're trying to tell them what to do uh, with the social policies. And that's kind of the general vibe I've gotten from around here. I think you're totally right in some sense. I think what the Democrats need to do, and my organization will definitely be working with candidates to try and do this, is I think that you know we need to sort of dominate local politics again. Because, you know, as long as, you know, we're the big tent, as long as we can kind of broadly agree on, you know, various policy goals, I'm down with working with people. Because, you know, what works in Ames, Iowa may not work in, you know, Charleston, South Carolina, or Reno, Nevada. So I think that we need people who are of their district, of their community. Yes, and I think that is something that Trump actually did really well, which was connecting to individual states. Like, I remember hearing about how he was up in Maine talking about, like, lobster fishing disagreements with fishermen from Canada or something. And he has these, like, small little tidbits that he brings up at his rallies that really connect with local voters. And that is not happening on our side. Exactly. I mean, you have people, I mean... Obviously, when, you know, presidential nominee of either side, you know, they'll give some sweeping speech about, you know, people in a random town in Pennsylvania here and all city in Ohio there, or place in Iowa we might need votes in, but they don't really talk about the issues of those areas. Like, um, I am not the biggest fan of a congressman named Colin Peter, just um, defeated after 30 years. Uh, what but, was the name again? It cut out for a second. Oh, my apologies. His name was Colin Peterson of Minnesota's 7th District. He's a bit too conservative for my personal taste, but I think he was a fantastic congressman because he was he was a man of the district. You know, he fundamentally understood what the people wanted, what the people needed, and he was sort of seen as a fixture of the community. That was so powerful that in 2016, Donald Trump carried his district by 30 points, but he somehow pulled out by six. Ooh. So I think we need more congresspeople like that. Um, I, I was reading a oh, book ahead. recently called uh, it's for left populism. We're definitely further, much further left than you are politically, at least. Probably. But that, that's <laughs> nothing to 
that's not a problem at all. Um, but it was advocating more for like the Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn types. Which uh, Corbyn has his own controversy that I, I don't even want to like touch. Um, <laughs> and it was it was talking about how there's like there's like three different groups of the left. There's the more like moderate, just kind of reforming, but accepting like what is the current part with no like long term goal. And then there's like the the word we use for them online is like tankies, and this is just those oh people God, I know just, what you're talking about. just so far into theory that they don't they don't like it. They do do the part of like saying neoliberal hegemony not good, but they're also like let's get rid of liberal, uh, liberal democracy too, which is not something I advocate for. And then there's the middle where it's just like our institutions are good, but they're being used improperly. Yeah. Um... One of my political heroes, I don't know if you've heard of him, is a Canadian politician named Tommy Douglas. Haven't he heard of him. Canada's Bernie. Um, so basically, back in the 30s, um, Saskatchewan, which is a province of Canada, sort of like Iowa, you know, it's a small farming province, has some serious Great Depression problems that make what happened in the United States look like a joke. So he was this Baptist minister that sort of noticed the suffering in his community, and um, he was able to start... Well, there's a political movement of sort of like anti-racist conservatives because the Ku Klux Klan had a weird influence in the province at the time, along with disaffected liberals and basically poor people of all stripes politically. And they were able to form a government after I think like 12 years. And he served five terms as the prime minister of Saskatchewan. And during that time, he implemented Medicare for the first time in any of these provinces. Um, he also implemented a few other programs like um, air ambulances because it's such a large area that, you know, sometimes an ambulance simply is not good enough. Um, he built highways. He built plumbing. Um, so he really modernized the state. He spent like a demon, but at the same time, and this is what I always tell conservatives when I tell the story, he maintained 17 balanced budgets in a row. So it can be done if you know what you're doing. And I think that, you know, his movement, since he was rated by the people of Canada in a 2004 poll as their greatest citizen ever for being the father of Medicare. I have heard of him before. Okay, yeah. Um, he partially inspired the United Rural Democrats because I feel like, you know, there are a lot of issues that I'm going to use the word liberals to avoid trouble. <laughs> liberals have kind of fallen asleep at the wheel on that rural and working people need resolved now. And I'm not saying that I necessarily alone have the tools to do that, but I think if we can point out to people that, no, we're not trying to take your freedom away. We're not trying to take your guns away. We're not trying to do any of these horrific things. We just want to return prosperity to your communities. Here's how we're going to do it. And if you'd like to join us, we'd be more than happy. I think that's how we're going to reach people. That's definitely a good message to come out to people with because they, they've kind of, at least in more conservative rural areas, they've kind of accepted that economic liberalism, free markets are the only possible way to get it, get up in life, despite never benefiting from it. Yeah. Um, I don't fully understand that either, but um, yeah, I mean, just it's, it's really confounding because those policies and those methods, you know, if you don't really have, you know, a college degree, if you're just some high school graduate who's working your annual labor or even, you know, some office desk job, then you're not going to see the benefits of that economic system. I mean, yeah, it might keep your nose out of water, but, you know, 
I think I read somewhere that like there's this thing called the American Dream Index, where it's like the likelihood of you being born in the bottom 20% and ending your life, or at least your career, in the top 20%. And we weren't even in the top 10. I think Denmark was number one. Is that the uh, the social mobility chart? I think it is. Because um, we're like 15th on that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I when mean, I read it, it was called the American Dream Index. but it's Yeah, not- yeah, I know. I've seen that a lot. And I, I remember that because I've, I always see conservatives pushing the uh, American dream still and talking about our social mobility when we're significantly lower than like quite a few countries out there. Um, but going back to what you were saying, what, like, what do you think are the specific problems that these areas are facing? Cause I've seen like a little bit about it. I think I watched uh, one of ICE's YouTube documentaries about, um, a mining town where every kid was just a miner and they took on their father's job and then mining went away. And now the area is kind of in reckons. They don't in rec in wreck and they don't want to leave because it's like their home. They feel really connected to it. Yeah. I think, um, well, the one issue I always bring up is access to broadband. Um, as of right now, only about 60% of Americans have access to that. And um, we're actually doing a study on this right now internally because we want to put out something about this. But basically, you know, we're losing billions of dollars every year because these small businesses do not have access to these, you know, wider markets or wider availability because they don't have access to broadband. And, you know, it doesn't affect, you know, the financial sector. It also affects education. I was speaking to a congressional candidate from Indiana a few months ago who was lamenting that a lot of these high school seniors may have trouble getting into college, not because they're not qualified, but because they will be fifth-year seniors because they'll be unable to go to school because the internet is so poor. And I know with a lot of universities, my university doesn't really do holistic review. They just sort of look at your GPA at how long you took to graduate high school, and that's basically it. Kids are going to struggle. Oh, so, so like a lot of rural communities just have completely shut down during the pandemic and are now going to have to add an extra year? I've heard that, yes. In, oh, wow. Because, you know, you need to do school. Obviously, you need to complete X number of courses or credit hours. or And if you cannot physically be in the classroom and if your school or your community's internet is so poor that you can't do a Zoom meeting like we're doing right now, then you're going to just have to wait a semester. And doing that is a major black mark on your resume when you're going for college apps. So it's not just the financial sector. I usually talk about the financial sector when I'm trying to sort of disarm conservatives. This affects everything. Education, if we're talking about like more rural communities and even possibly some uh, like mixed suburban communities too, uh, especially in spaces or states like South Carolina, it is kind of a cyclical effect. Because you have this group of people, um, like originally back in the 60s, you didn't need a college education to get a good job. And that, that slowly changed as we began to deindustrialize in the 70s. And that mentality still sticked around in the South because there's still a little bit of industry here. And they don't. our schools were not funded at the level that places like New York or Vermont are. So the level of importance on education is lower. And the mm-hmm. people who succeed despite not going to high school or who go to college but already saw that they could get by on that level of funding 
don't put the level of or level of importance towards education that places like Vermont and New York, as I mentioned before, do. Yeah. And it just keeps going over and over again until the funds slowly make their way more towards like charter schools or private schools or just not being there anymore. Yeah, I think because um, I will say that like my family does come from a long line of like Indiana steel workers. So I do understand the story of the industrialization very clearly. Um, I know that my uncle went up, he was a steel worker for nearly 50 years and he was like near the top of his union seniority. So when they kept cutting jobs, instead of, you know, being fired or, you know, let go, he would just be demoted. And over the course of, I think, five or 10 years, he went from being one of the top people in the office to driving the forklift again. So I understand that completely. Now, I will say there is a story of a bit of hope. It's a bit flawed, but I think it could be implemented elsewhere, maybe with some tweaks. So there's a town in Iowa, about 30 miles east of Des Moines, called Newton. Um, back in the day, they built washing machines, dryers, all kinds of things for Maytag. And then they left. A lot of people were left unemployed, but with skills. So nowadays, there's a project there where they use these people who still have these skills to build wind turbines, because Iowa is second only to Texas when it comes to wind energy. So I will admit that I have heard from people who work at these factories that it is not as good paying, and maybe the benefits are not 100% what they were during the old Maytag days, but I think it's really promising to see that we are able to sort of maintain industry, maintain communities where they are. And I think if we can sort of tweak this to work better for specific communities, we can save some, but not all communities, just because industrialization is sort of leaving this country through the course of sort of, I, I don't want to say the sands of history, because that sounds really weird and right. <laughs> but, you know, basically, those jobs are not going to come back, most of them, at least. I, you also have to yeah. understand there's like the Keynesian model of like putting stuff or putting money towards specific things. It's a lot, lot more complicated than that. But just like sp public money towards like building up jobs and demand and stuff like that. I, but you can't completely do that again anymore and you can't reindustrialize because we do have a large ecological problem that's heading our way in like 10, 20 years. I do think uh, hearing that people are easily retrained to go build wind turbines is very promising though when we uh, talk about things like the Green New Deal or uh, or uh, what's Joe Biden's, uh, e what's his plan called? It's not as snappy so nobody remembers. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's very promising as long as like, I think we need to make sure we not only take out the subsidies of like these oil industries, but we need to invest in the wind and solar and invest in retraining these people, start a jobs program, redo our whole uh, energy grid. I think you're definitely on the right track with that one. Cause I think, um, you know, I, I read somewhere that if we didn't subsidize the oil industry, they'd be running a deficit for probably longer than either any of us have been alive, um, just because of how they operate. Now, I will say I'm not 100% on board with the Green New Deal just yet, just because I feel like, you know, I haven't read it over. I, I, I'm not fully informed. It, but it's very, it's a very general policy and it, it matters to the politician. Yeah, yeah. The, the biggest criticism I've heard is that it's not enough of an exact plan. It's just kind of like a general guidelines of what we should be doing. It's like, okay. zero, I think it's just 0% by 2030. 
because I know that um, I'm a big Canadian politics nerd, as already made apparent. And I know that their energy policy is complete insanity because you have provinces like Alberta that are basically completely reliant on oil. They've had 75 years to diversify their economy, but every time the chance comes up, they just decide to double down. So because of that, whenever oil has a bad day, their unemployment can go from two to 8% like that. And it's just a disaster. So thankfully we've been economically smarter in this country. Now, the reason I'm a bit, you know, I'm not 100% on the green energy side yet is because I am concerned with the remaining people who do work in oil and gas and uh, coal. I know that those numbers are diminishing, but I want to ensure that, you know, as we phase them out, the people who work in those industries, you know, can live a life of dignity. Because obviously a lot of those people are very hard workers. And um, while I don't really, I'm not a fan of oil, I'm not a fan of coal, I want to make sure the people who work these jobs for generations at this point have a respectable uh, exit stage left. That's why I think it's very important we take them from those industries and bring them into wind and solar in a, I guess, new industrialization of America type thing. And I think that's one of the things I, because when I listen to Biden, I know he's been really, he's been pretty strong about wanting to cut oil subsidies, but I don't think he's been as strong about uh, subsidizing new forms of energy. And so I worry that uh, we're going to stop subsidizing oil. Oil prices are going to go up, but we're not going to do anything to fill its place. And we're going to end up being left with the worst of both worlds. And then people are going to run to the Trump of 2024. I think you you may have a real problem there and more of an international issue. Um, I think that, you know, despite manufacturing not really going to be coming back as a major portion of our um, economic portfolio, I do think that we must sort of be the leaders when it comes to innovation on green technology. Because if it's not us, it's going to be the Chinese. And I would prefer that the technology that very well could save the world from itself is in the hands of a nation that is not so outwardly hostile to democracy. Are the Chinese developing green energy? Uh, I believe so. Um, it is understood that they are, but with China, you can never be 100% certain. Yeah, they, uh, I, they've got enough people to where they might accidentally be doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. See, I think that's interesting because I always hear people criticize the Green New Deal as being pointless because of China and India. Yeah, I think um, I think that is a bit silly just because, you know, China and India are in their sort of lifespans as countries are in completely different places right now. Uh, China and India are doing in, let's call it 25 to 30 years, what the United States did in the entirety of the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. That's they, part of economics though, but th there's like rules for that because it's, was it, was it catch-up growth? Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, but. Oh no, it's okay, it's totally fine. I've never heard that phrase before if we're being entirely truthful, but um, because of their positions in the world as sort of this rapid industrialization, you know, that's significantly messier. I think with, you know, any sort of economic, not economic, well, I guess it is economic since it is the economy, stupid. <laughs> um, I think with environmental policy, it's very important that we kind of lead by example. 
because we've already industrialized. Most of our manufacturing and sort of industrial jobs have already left. So since we are so dominated by the service sector of the economy now, I think we can really lead by example. And then when it's time for China and India to sort of stop doing their thing, then we can sort of lead the economic and international pressure on them. Yeah, I was reading a book recently called Automation in the Future of Work, which is, is really good and just came out uh, for those who haven't heard of it. But it was talking about in one of the first four chapters about how we experienced deindustrialization uh, in through the 70s and 90s or through the, maybe even the 60s and the 90s. And we're at the top like we we got to go as much as industrialization would go pretty much, including like Western Europe. But there's places like South Africa and Brazil who were who had to deindustrialize in the 90s who never really got to completely industrialize in the first place so they, they didn't get the benefits that a lot of the western countries got out of being able to have these a large sector of their economy do industry instead of uh brown yeah. jobs um so, I, go ahead sorry uh, there's like a lot of countries that are really like i don't want to say like pissed off really but they're kind of just a little agitated that America now in its deindustrialized stage in Western Europe is requiring us to do this on like a global scale when they don't, when that means hindering their economy for another like 30 or so years without have, without having like major investments from those countries. I think you're right. I think this is going to be, uh, I think climate policy, especially when it comes to foreign policy, it's just going to be a real mess over the next, call it 50 years. I just think, <laughs> you know, we had all these fights and, you know, different political intrigues over oil and energy policy in the second half of the 20th century. I think that many of those discussions will now kind of transition into sort of the greenness of various countries, because you're absolutely right. Many of these countries did not have the chance to industrialize. And with Brazil and South Africa, uh, I would blame apartheid for South Africa. Oh, yeah, that's part of it. Brazil was a slave economy into the 20th century. I mean, they abolished slavery around 1890. But, you know, anything that happened in the U.S. is nothing compared to what happened in Brazil and South Africa. I mean, Brazil was like a fascist state like 20 years ago. It is very well maybe come on again. <laughs> so, yeah, like because of those things, you know, industry just simply didn't grow because they had no reason to grow. That, that's, those are just the examples that pulled because those are chartable examples mainly. Okay, that makes sense. But, so they, yeah. uh, somewhere else brought up Bolivia, which, uh, I mean, they finally got their government back from a, a coup. I'm not going to put it in quotations because I believe it was. Um, Probably but, was. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is, like, they're not mad that they can't industrialize. It's just they're not, they don't have access to develop their own green technology. They don't have the capital to do so. So if they want to build their economy and they want to do it in a green way they just don't have the capability to do it completely on their own so they know that a lot of western powers are going to be at least mildly antagonistic towards a movement like moss which is i believe translates to movement towards socialism in english but they they also kind of want i don't want to speak for an entire country that i'm not a part of but they they do want to be helped they do want to build their economy on green technology if they can yeah, I think um, that's why I think that we sort of have to, you know, kind of go on a case by case with this sort of stuff, 
uh, at least, I mean, obviously I'm in no position to really chart any policy courses, but that's sort of how I would handle it. Because, you know, in Western Europe and the United States, and to a lesser extent, Russia, I think we have, you know, we've already gone through this industrialization phase. We've already kind of moved past manufacturing for the most part. I mean, Eastern and Southern Europe still does have some manufacturing, but for the most part, it's gone. And, you know, because of that, I think, you know, we can sort of start the ball rolling because, you know, the, the biggest polluters in the world are, if I'm not mistaken, the United States, China, and India. And while China and India, they still have some room to grow. And I do think that it is not currently possible to curb their emissions, just given on sort of the track they're going down. We can definitely control ourselves. And I think that because um, India, China, and America are sort of apples, oranges, and bananas at this point economically, we can withstand doing this, wherein, you know, India still uses vast amounts of coal. And, you know, they have their reasons because their economy is in a completely different state than our own. Uh, do you think it's the business of America that once we start becoming more green, trying to push those other countries to go green? And for the smaller ones we talked about, maybe investing in their countries so that they can have green energy? So, yeah, I think um, I would say that, you know, given the issue is, you know, climate change, green energy, and this is something that regardless of your political position or national origin will hurt you if we don't do this right. So I think that, yes, we should push other countries to become greener over time, but only after they've reached certain benchmarks. And it should not just be the United States of America. I feel like because this is a world issue, there should be international pressure to do so, since this is not just an American issue. I think with you know smaller countries, um, I don't know if you've heard, but um, you know Julian Castro, when he ran for president, discussed a uh, a Marshall Plan for Central America to give you know large amounts of money and grants to countries like Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador to try and help them rebuild their countries and revitalize them. I think that um, you know a lot of American foreign policy should be based around that because you know at this point we don't really have that much else to do in terms of aggression or, you know, opposition. I think at this point, it's just about, you know, making as many friends as we can. I know that sounds extraordinarily nice. (laughs) Like, I know, like, I'm surprised like a little Daisy hasn't appeared behind me or something. It it does sound like a little uh, preschool show about making friends with other countries, but it is true. I do think we need to be less imperialistic in more cooperative with other countries because i think you know things like the marshall plan you know they were able to turn through these you know different infrastructure programs and rebuilding we were able to turn europe from a complete wasteland into a very strong economic and diplomatic force in a very short period of time so i think that you know once countries sort of hit the benchmark for this green technology we should be willing to work with them to give it to them. And maybe if that country say has, you know, human rights problems, maybe we say, you know, you drop this, we'll give you this, or, you know, maybe it'll just be sort of a a gift. But I think that with the issue of climate change, um, internationally speaking, 
we cannot do this alone. Like, obviously we are the most powerful nation in the history of the world, but there are some things you just need a little help from your friends. Okay, I'm done with hippie crap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in our, our foreign policy, especially in the last, or since World War II, pretty much, we've always just kind of gone in expecting something back, at least in physical form, rather than some like long-term project. Because like it, we went to Europe, we we expected them not to, uh, not to, uh, al- al- alliance themselves with the Soviet Union. That was the benefit. We gave them a lot of money. Uh, they get to build their social welfare programs, and they didn't ally with the Soviet Union. And that's what we did with the Middle East, with the little bit different, and that didn't work out as well. Uh, and then with the Southeast of Asia and. We just always expected something back. And what was it? Donald Trump on one of his vlogs that is now deleted off of YouTube. He said that, that we should ask uh, for Libya of like, it was a lot of oil for just getting rid of Gaddafi. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, with U.S. foreign policy, I didn't expect this much you know, discussion up, but I'm always happy. I'm a, I love foreign policy, so I'm happy to discuss it. I think that, you know, since the Cold War is over, you know, the world stage no longer looks like a chessboard. Because I do understand that maybe we did do some rather questionable things during the Cold War, but it was in defense against the Soviet Union. So I understand why that happened. But I think now that this geopolitical stage has multiple players, I don't really think this sort of action is needed as well as back then. Um, which is why I think the Iraq war was, you know, absolutely unnecessary in that sense. And that's why it received such international backlash. To, uh, to bring this back around to the U S a little bit, Mm. could you tell us a bit more specifically about the United uh, Rural Democrats of America? Yes, thankfully. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to discuss things. Cause I'm, I'm really curious, like what exactly you're doing, what your goals are. And like, are you uh, like pushing policies? At the or... present, no. So I'll, I'll lay it out to you. So um, a friend of mine who ran for Congress in Kentucky, who was also like a rock star back in the day, he played, I think, backup for the Eagles or something. Oh. His name is Hank Linderman. He wrote out this little like manifesto called the, Pol- the what is it called? The Contract for Rural and Working America. And uh, we use it as our platform. Um, we don't really push policy besides like rural broadband at this point, because the point is for 2022 is mostly to find good candidates to support. So I'll go back into the organization itself now a little bit. So the goal is to build what I call our national nervous system. So the goal is to find quite literally a thousand, possibly more local volunteers who don't really do much aside from report on the area how people are feeling, any good local candidates, stuff like that. So we can sort of have a feel for any given location in the United States at the same time. And then we can, you know, base that off of, you know, reports from other people. And we can try and determine, you know, these are good candidates we can support. Because in 2022, given our resources and just, you know, how wide our birth is, we're most likely going to just support, you know, local or state representative level kind of candidates. And, you know, a big congressional candidate might scoff at a donation of $1,000 or 500 bucks, 
but um, a local candidate, state representative, they're going to use it and they're going to remember it. So a I lot th- of money for a local candidate. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at a lot of the craziest shit that's come out of the legislative branch of the United States in the last decade, it's been off state legislatures, not Congress. So I think that if we could sort of start taking back those areas, then we can start making you know much larger, more meaningful change by just sort of continually growing outward. Um, in terms of policy, I would say right now, the best policy I can offer you is we need people who fit. Because right now the Democratic Party itself has this mindset that, you know, with in terms of policy, that sort of one size fits all. There's a key to every, there's one key to every door. And clearly that has failed because in some areas they're getting completely obliterated. And obviously, you know, there are other factors there. But I think that if we can sort of decompartmentalize the Democratic platform and say that, yeah, those guys are Democrats over there in New York or Chicago, but you know what? Here in Boise, Idaho or Des Moines, Iowa, I'm an Iowa Democrat. These are my beliefs. I don't necessarily align with them, but on the broad strokes, we believe in X, Y, and Z. I think we can really make some differences because the one thing that happens every time a Democrat runs is they get tied to some candidate or some other thing that doesn't appear in their state. Um, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I think I will just for reference. Uh, The concept of defund the police. Um, A lot of people in Iowa oppose it. And I'm not going to debate the merits of that. But objectively, it hurt Democratic candidates because even though, you know, my congresswoman, Abby Finkenauer, was quite friendly with the police, she was still kind of branded as this anti-cop fanatic you know, blue, Black Lives Matter, back of the blue, all that stuff. And it was one of the things that harmed her. So I think we need to sort of, you know, re-segment the platform, if you will. I, I think the biggest problem is, for a, a lack of a better word, the party system has kind of been uh, nationalized in a sense. Like That is exactly the problem. Uh, because uh, defund the police works for Cori Bush. It just doesn't work in Iowa. You're talking like, it's it's a phrase that works but it, it only works in like two districts so is yeah that, so the the thing is um like while i generally support that policy we we on the left kind of we have gotten a little defensive on it sometimes um it is it is a catchy phrase and it's there's not the the exact policy behind it would take a lot longer phrase to decide and then there's some people that also want to just get rid of the police and those people are elsewhere i think my biggest problem with it is uh i think maybe the liberal side ran away from it too much and let the republicans control the narrative on what it meant and let the republicans call them the crazy defund the police socialists uh and i don't know if that i don't know if that works because like i remember in the last debate Joe Biden was really going on about the, uh, we're not, I'm not the socialist, I beat the socialist, but it's like rural Democrats or rural people that aren't that connected still think you're a socialist. I don't think like doing all this work to separate a... yourself does anything for you. Yeah, um, I have a feeling just based on your guys' um, opinions on things that you're not the biggest fan in the world of Joe Manchin. Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, no, not at all. I think I have many disagreements with him. But I think 
in terms of campaigning, he's definitely doing the right thing for his region. Like, I think we need more candidates like that, not conservative, mind you, but more kind of in tune with the region, whether that is or more moderate. I mean, West Virginia has suffered a lot since they've been voting Republican in the last 30 or so years. And and that's like the goal of of your organization? That is, I mean, the real goal is to sort of long-term, you know, help rural communities improve, which is more non-political than anything. But I think political means is probably one of the best ways to do it since, you know, if you leave a problem to be short-term, then you know the individual or maybe the community can fix it. But I think a lot of these issues have existed for so long that we just simply need something much larger than ourselves to fix it. Yeah. I think you know with these kind of better candidates, we might be able to do something because you know Joe Manchin, you know I don't agree with him on everything, but he does know how to campaign as a solid West Virginian, and I think that um, that is a net positive. And we need more candidates who can think like that, who can think of themselves. And I think also if we're going to do a more progressive and urban example, you know, Jamal Bowman, I love him. He's, you know, he's great. Solid, not column, I guess, you know, pillar column of his community. And he's a local school principal. He knows how the people of his area think, need, and feel. And we just need more candidates like that in rural areas. Plain and simple. I mean, the... the problem, as I said before, nationalizing, like you see that with smaller movements like the, the Green Party and they, they think that they can just go for like the top of the office or like the top office and just work their way down. But this is a much better version of doing it because it's what the evangelicals did in the 70s and 80s to take over the Republican Party. They started with your school boards. They started with your uh, city council. They started with the the state legislators before they went for people like uh, George H. W. Bush in two thousand. That's why I really like what the DSA is doing right now, starting with more local candidates. And uh, I'm hoping long term they'll bring the whole party a little more further to the left. But uh, going back to the United Rural Democrats, so what exactly are more specific plans? Are you like? doing uh like door-to-door knocking like phone calls to people what what are you guys doing (laughs) so what are we so i love the door knocking so um i do too once we actually get out and once the world is a little safer um we're developing a system of organizers right now um for the next let's call it six to eight months depending on your state and you know all the filing deadlines we're going to be basically going around communities across whatever state you live in And we're going to, you know, just go to local political events, local, you know, you know, local social gatherings, you know, some states are kind of locked down right now, some aren't. So, you know, there's, there's variance, but um, we're just going to sort of, you know, start to make ourselves part of the landscape, part of the community. So I think that that is key to any movement of this sort, because then, um, you know, my state is obviously, we're characterized as, you know, just kind of white bread, that's it corn, you know, world's largest something in the middle of a cornfield, that's Iowa. But I think, you know, there is like internal diversity in the state. So I think, you know, when we have our organizers who can understand that in this narrow part of the state, these values are taken to a higher standard than these values, we can actually start to recruit candidates and fund candidates. And when we do have this, you know, sort of slate, then we intend to, you know, phone bank for them, knock doors for them, you know, depending on whatever the state organization feels like um, at the time. So that's the general plan. 
And uh, this is something that I'm assuming like local people like us can get involved in when you oh, yeah. come around to our areas. Oh, yes, of course. Um, we are not the most active in your state yet, but yes, of course. Uh, we, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed. I'm allowed to swear, right? Uh, yeah, I already said piss. You're good. Okay, cool. So, um, you know, I don't really care. Uh, my philosophy is with this group, because we are looking to make such changes that, you know, affect everyone. We're not really, you know, that narrowly partisan or ideological. Um, everybody's welcome unless you're a dick. So, you know, as long as you sort of gel well with the group, you're welcome. Um, so yeah, that's the general thing. And I hate if I sound too vague, but it's like, because, and I will be honest with you, our launch was, you know, so good and so, you know, powerful that we really need to start thinking more nationally than I was anticipating. Because originally we were gonna focus on, you know, Georgia, help those two candidates win. And then we were gonna do some testing in Virginia because they have their elections one year off. But um, I think that, you know, sort of the key, uh, if you wanna sort of get it down to sort of two sentences, it's one, the Democrats need to start listening to these areas again. Since they can't, we will. And two, um, the other snippet would be that we need people who can sort of understand where they're coming from. I think that a lot of the times, and we've already discussed this, I think the national party tries to cram the national platform into areas where it just is not necessarily going to take well. So I think that, you know, whether it is to the left or to the right, we just need people who can actually win because as the old saying goes, losers do not legislate. What do you think your uh, biggest challenge is uh, coming up over like the next year? Honestly, it's probably going to be logistical because, um, you know, we also all do, we have a registered pack, so we can give money directly to these candidates when we find them. But like the thing is, you know, and you guys probably like this, we're grassroots. Um, I think our average donation is like $39 or something like that. And the thing is, because, you know, we don't have, you know, some multi-million dollar something or other backing us up. It's just, you know, 20 college kids and a few other people. I think that it's going to be kind of difficult logistically to get those off the ground. But if we do succeed, and I think we are on track to do so given the hard work I've seen, we could have a real movement here. Because a lot of people I've spoken to over the last, because I've spoken to nearly 2,000 people in the course of forming this um, across the country, many of whom are apolitical or even Democrats who voted for Donald Trump out of spite. And you started this project when? I started it on September 7th. So, you know, we've really grown in a very short period of time. I think that, you know, once people see that there is a group of people who actually, pardon me, who actually listens who actually cares, that is going to be sort of the biggest thing to move. And I think we're capable of doing it. Right now, it's sort of just sort of building up strength to move that big rock. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying reminds me of that, um, uh, the Jamie Harrison ad that I saw a couple times on Facebook where he was talking about the rural guy down the dirt road that doesn't really give a shit about what the government's doing because it's no, none of it's really affected his life or made it any better. Yeah, I think um, I've seen that ad. Um, I really like that ad. And I think it's there is some truth to it because, you know, most people think that, you know, nobody cares. Like, and I think when I go on Rising on Monday, 
um, that's going to be kind of my main thesis that people feel like fundamentally nobody is listening to their problems. So I think that, you know, obviously it takes time to establish trust, but once we do that, we very well may be unstoppable. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power in those local elections and bringing people over to the democratic votes. Uh, George is going to be a definitely, it will be a special election in the way that it's been mm-hmm. put. <laughs> I honestly yeah. do not know what's going to happen because, uh, like, what are, Ozoff and Warnock might actually pull it off just because a bunch of people and PACs are just like these two con or these two senators let down Donald Trump. Do not put their names on January fifth. Yeah. <laughs> do you think there people are actually going to convince uh, Georgians to boycott the election? Like, I know I've seen that going around as a a bit of a joke, but. I'm not sure it's a joke to everyone. (laughs) I think it's quite possible that there are some people either unwittingly or accelerationist who will be doing that. Um, I know that on election night... um, Wait, like right-wing accelerationists? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're actually worse. What are you accelerating towards? whatever the hell is i i don't even know anymore like i would call it like fascism but like are they like race war people wait are they like do they think they're accelerating towards like uh china and then there's going to be a a workers revolution that becomes like ancap or something okay so i'll explain it now i know some people who like if you're familiar with like nick fuentes more oh groypers yeah those types of people um I know Iowa State is a very conservative school, so there are a few people hanging around with those kind of persuasions. You don't have to look very hard. Um, and I can tell you, those people will probably, there are people who will vote for, you know, Warnock and Ossoff, even though they're reactionary. And the reason they'll do so is they want Biden to have a united government. So then they can go back in 2024 and Trump can say, look at all the shit they did that's horrible. I would have never done this. Come on, bring me back. What, what's his name? Um the begin who started i should know who started the all right movement richard spencer yeah he he oh, said to vote for biden because yep trump that's exactly well what he did because trump wasn't fashy enough i yeah. think that's i think it's interesting that like people are very much scared of socialism in this country yet there are a lot of like full-on nazi people like i've i've had like uh old high school friends slide up on my story like saying literal Nazi talking points when I like post shit about like anti-police stuff. And, and it's really strange. Yeah. I think that it just kind of goes back to, you know, what happened right before FDR became president, because, you know, we've had social, I'm not a socialist quite obviously, but you know, we've had socialism pretty strongly in this country between, you know, like 1880 and 1925, let's call it like that. You had somebody like Eugene Debs, who was sort of pushing socialism. And he did get, I think, 6 or 7% in one of those elections. I mean, he got 3% from behind a jail cell bar. So, you know, obviously there was a bit of a movement there. And there was very strong opposition, if you could like the Palmer raids of the Harding administration. So, you know, there was sort of this always entrenched opposition to socialism. And I think it goes back to that sort of frontier mentality of sort of like a broadly anti-collectivist attitude. But... 
fascism. I mean, a large portion of this country didn't really have a negative opinion of fascism until the 1940s because they didn't really, well, they didn't really know about the whole Holocaust thing. But in the earlier stages of it, they just saw it as a resurgence of nationalism. Um, you know, in the, I think it was like 1929 or 1930, um, General Smedley Butler of the U.S. Marine Corps caused a great controversy by criticizing Benito Mussolini in a speech. And I think it's because, you know, back then, you know, fascism was just seen as sort of, you know, just another just another regime, just another authoritarian takeover, part and parcel. I mean, I, I learned it from like a Marvel documentary, but the first issue of Captain America where he's punching uh, Hitler was extremely controversial because like Pearl Harbor hadn't happened at the time and Hitler wasn't some uh, foreign, like he wasn't the embodiment of evil that he is now. He was just so, a foreign leader that a lot of people were on board with. I don't yeah. think... I don't think people have name recognition with fascism either. And I don't think people hear the word fascism and go Hitler. A lot of people still think Hitler was a national socialist, even now. Yeah, I think that's definitely true as well. You know, fascism, I mean, fascism itself is most certainly harder to define if you want to like give like a definition. So I think that is kind of part of the explanation as to why. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, with like Hitler. I mean, have you seen that event? It was in, I think, the spring of 1939 at Madison Square Garden of the America First movement, where they had like a 500 foot tall banner of George Washington and flanked by it was two swastikas. I think I've seen it in a No, I have not. Oh Wait, are God. you like telling that like Nicholas Funtes just stole his thing from like a Nazi thing or a Nazi? Yeah, America First was the movement that was pro-Germany before World War II. Oof. Oh. <laughs> wow. That's a that's insane. Because it, it, it's always weird how these uh these slogans come back. Because I'm I was reading the other day that like I think Ronald Reagan was saying something about make America great again during his presidency too. Like yeah, and it's weird how these slogans come back. Also speaking of Ronald Reagan I, people act like Trump is very outside the Republican Party, but when you I feel like when you look at his achievements he's He's like the most successful Republican since Reagan, really. Maybe coalition-wise, but... I mean, with, like, getting the big tax cuts, with all the deregulation. Yeah, I think um, I think there are some aspects of Ronald Reagan that are sort of diametrically opposed to Trump. But for the most part, yeah, I would agree that, you know, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump have been the two most effective Republican leaders in the last four decades. You don't, Trump's a lot more volatile emotionally compared to Reagan. So, oh yeah, no, he's way less put together. I also find it interesting that we're still having like the Medicare debate today because I was looking back in it and what was it was Jimmy Carter like Medicare for all, and then Reagan said he was pro subsidizing healthcare for everyone in the country, and then that disappeared. Yeah, that completely disappeared, and then there was the plan in ninety four. For I think that was the response to Medicare for all again. And then that plan was slightly adapted to be Obamacare later on. Yep. I mean, literally, I can go back in the history because I just took a bunch of like political science, like history crossover classes. Like you had Nixon proposed to form Medicare for all. So did Eisenhower. I mean, these are, you know, Johnson, Carter. These are very different presidents. 
all agreeing on the same thing. Um, you know, there was an option in the 1940s. I Correct me if I'm wrong here. I may be a little misread on this because it was a while ago. But essentially, um, the Dixiecrats offered Medicare for all, as we would know it, to Harry Truman in exchange for not giving it to non-whites. He rejected it. That sounds correct. That sounds I, that sounds right. <laughs> I forget what it was called, but I remember there was some sort of discussion of that right around the beginning of his second term. I mean, that that's if we're gonna go back to the the I'm gonna call it fashy, but I mean, this video is not getting monetized for a myriad of reasons of our subscriber count <laughs> and what we've already said. Um, but like they are kind of economically in the middle because they do take from both sides. It is their economic policy is like left-wing economics, but only for people who look like me. Uh, so what do you think has kept us from having Medicare for all for all these years? Because I think, like when I talk to my parents, I don't think they don't realize that this is something that's gone back for fucking decades. Yeah, I mean, like, I just think it's really interesting that we haven't, because you have to consider the fact, um, if you go to Germany, Germany got their version of universal health care in the 1870s, because Otto von Bismarck did not want to give the socialists a leg to stand on. He literally gave the German people universal health care to cut socialism at the bud. I mean, we've done that with a few programs. Um, our... Yeah, but why haven't we done I mean, like, I just find it interesting that this is the one that keeps getting away from us. Because it, it's really hard to build a socialist movement, especially with like our history with unions, Pinkertons and stuff like that. But there's yeah. <laughs> I think, no, it's just like generally speaking, like of all of the things that, you know, we've sort of fought in the name of fighting like either socialism or anarchism or whatever it is, I think that, you know, this is one that could actually help people. And, you know, unlike a lot of them, there is clear bipartisan support even today for things like this. So like, I just don't get it. I think that it's sort of, you know, more of a corporatist issue than a than anything else really because, because you had the uh libertarian response to the new deal that was a major part of the american ideology for like 30 to 40 years after the new deal was passed yeah i know it's just it's strange to me that like somewhere in all of these opportunities to do it we didn't because you have to consider in canada when they um in implemented medicare uh the doctors went on strike for three weeks and basically public opinion for the government went through the floor. People actually died as a result of it because the doctors just refused to take care of anyone. So they had to bring in doctors from like the UK, America, elsewhere. And then finally, the people just kind of rose up against the doctors and said, okay, enough of this bullshit. And Medicare happened. So I think this was 1960. When did all the uh, Medicare fear mongering start? Because I think that's a big problem now is like, Medicare socialism, Medicare is slow, it sucks, but it's not exactly true. I think it's always been there. I mean, in 1962, I think, or 1963, Ronald Reagan did a podcast or like an audio recording where he talked about Medicare and said that if we had Medicare, it would be the end of the America we know. And he like literally the like the last sentence or two of his um, his phrase is like, you know, one day we would find out that we have socialism and we would spend our twilight years with our children on our lap telling them when men were free. It's like literally like 
the ultimate fear mongering. Jesus Christ. That's, that's a lot. I, I guess it's just like, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of wish there was more people trying to educate social on socialism so that there's not such a knee jerk reaction to it. Cause my big thing is like, you don't have to support it, but don't say some shit like Venezuela was socialist. Look what happened to Venezuela. I just, that drives me through the roof. Yeah, I think um, I would say that I would identify mostly as like a social democrat. I'm not really full. Like I do believe in. Like, I think social democrat is like the bare minimum what we need right now. The fact that we're not we already fair. there is so frustrating. <laughs> but regardless, I think that um, it's not just the issue of social. It's just you know, no matter who does it, it just sort of needs to be done because you know, in the United Kingdom. A lot of their good labor laws that were, you know, implemented before Thatcher tore them down were actually implemented in the 50s by Churchill. So I think that, you know, regardless of socialism or progressivism or even conservatism, I feel like, and this is kind of the, you know, the axiomatic vibe of my organization. There are things that need to get done. It's quite clear that the Republican Party and their philosophy will not lead us to these things. The Democratic Party has not done as well as they should in these areas when it comes to outreach and listening, but we must work together to get this stuff done. Well, I think the other opposition is with young people, it's very, uh, it, political comes as a meme, but the young generation seems to all be on the bottom of it, but they're very far right libertarian or very far left libertarian. And uh, even those things like public schools getting funded, Medicare for all happening is very important. I honestly almost think young uh, right-wing libertarians are almost more opposition in the long term than like the conservative Republican party. That is distinctly possible. I think that if the Republican Party were to have internal divisions as a result of Trump staying on as leader of the party, I think you could definitely see sort of a split. And one of the splinters would be something to that effect. Because I think that, and I know this is sort of a boomer take, but I think most young people do not have a very strong grasp on economics. So we, that's not a boomer take. That's just true. Okay. <laughs> I think that's like true it's, of every generation, true, though. But I mean, the last time I said it, I was called a boomer. So I'll just kind of preempt it with that. Basically, I think that, you know, once you sort of get down to the meat and potatoes of things, then you can really start to look at it through, you know, clear eyes. We can actually do something. But I think a lot of people who are, especially on that extreme libertarian right, yes, uh, having this extreme libertarian financial fiscal position on government will result in a very efficient government financially, but you're also going to screw over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the process of doing that. Yeah. The way I, the way I see like minarchism and anarcho-capitalism is it's just like, is it's just like wealth inequality to the max. And then, you know, we got these people that want to privatize schools, uh, privatize fucking the police, privatize the fire department. Um, I really hope that those people don't actually get real chances in government. I mean, Betsy DeVos is probably the biggest on, um, like, with at I least, like, two levels of um, 
coverage of the privatized school part. I think what would happen, and I don't know who well you know, like other states, but like Kansas, you had Sam Brownback. <laughs> he just tried slashing his government's budget to hell. And he destroyed social services in his state so badly. Didn't he get rid of like income tax or something? He got rid of like a lot. Like he just slapped. It was like supposed to be some sort of like libertarian experiment. I don't fully understand. I remember there was like two 18 year olds that were Republican, but were pushing for more taxes because the state had gone into such a like hellish state. Yeah, exactly. I thought our economic experiments were for Central America, not in the US. No, uh, Brownback. (laughs) And I like I have friend like my vice president is from Kansas, and like he's told me that like Brownback's idea was to sort of like make government as functionally efficient as small as he could, and instead of making it as small and efficient as he could, he just kind of broke it. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, he definitely needs to be more efficient, but not smaller. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. I think uh, people have this have it in their head that big government means corrupt government and means control. Think, think, people think like big government means no guns and they have almost no connection. Yeah, I personally hate the, the big government, bad, big government, bad government, or even big government, small government binary, because I think that it's more about good governance. Yes, it's what they're doing. I can tell you, I grew up in the state of Illinois, and they have a pretty big government by the standards of a state, but they are corrupt and incompetent. So I understand why people would be opposed to big government because they're not doing very well what they're supposed to be doing. So I think that, you know, instead of size, it should be, you know, what we're getting from it and yeah. how it actually functions. Yeah, one, of, one of the things I like to say is that the government always represents somebody. It, it, the government's a good democracy when it represents the people. I think that's definitely true. Um, that's what we're trying to do. I know that, you know, a lot of people, uh, especially in these rural races and, you know, smaller congressional races, you know, oftentimes um, the Democratic Party will sort of pick their person 18 months in advance. Doesn't really matter, you know, if they fit the region or not. And then when they lose, they're like, I guess we didn't give them enough money. Um, yeah, they just shuffle lo- like millions or tens of millions of dollars into Amy McGrath and Jamie Harrison. Oh, I have just- a story about Amy McGrath for you. Um, I will tell <laughs> it until after the election, but I'm telling it now. So nice. allegedly, 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 what I was told is that Amy McGrath was supposed to run and make Mitch McConnell bleed as much money as possible. So he'd hoard money and not give it to Republicans who are threatened. And that she knew she was gonna lose and in exchange she would get secretary of the Air Force or something like that. And then she's not gonna get that. (laughs) Uh, Not by losing by 20. Literally she outperformed Marquita Bradshaw by two. And there was like a hundred million dollars difference between them. Yeah, I I don't. I didn't put a single dollar towards that campaign. I, I thought Jamie Harrison could have pulled it off, but I think the Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer ads kind of got him in the butt. Yeah, I, yeah. I think Harrison is a fine candidate. I think, honestly, this is just my opinion. Uh, I think people are almost more scared on, for, as far as like rural right-wing people are more scared of like establishment Democrats than they are of more progressive people with like economic policies. Because I think like, 
Like, yeah, uh, they ran the attack ads on Harrison that were like the big socialist China. He's in the pockets of China and shit. But I think, honestly, what's more effective than that is literally just saying he's friends with Nancy Pelosi. People fucking hate Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. No shit. Like, <laughs> I think, um, are you familiar with Randy Bryce? No. Uh, no. So um, I ran a congressional race in Wisconsin's first district this summer. We lost our primary for questionable reasons, but I'll leave that out. Uh, <laughs> basically, Randy Bryce is this iron worker who has worked the iron for, I think, like 20, 25 years. He can literally point to, in downtown Milwaukee, what buildings he helped build. And, like, you should look up a picture of him. Like, he is all he's all American iron worker. And um, he ran against Paul Ryan in 2018, and then Ryan withdrew, and somebody else ran. But um, he was very progressive. He's actually Bernie Sanders' main surrogate in the state of Wisconsin. And um, basically... If it weren't for some personal scandals he had, he probably would be congressman from Wisconsin's first right now. And, um, you know, I think you're totally right with the established Democrat thing. That's why I try and avoid being one. <laughs> um, because I think that... Yeah, I, I kind of wish the Democratic Party would stop pushing forward people that are so associated with corruption. Like, it's like Hillary Clinton in the last election. How the fuck did that happen? She was, it's not even, even like a decade before she was running for president, she was still associated with being corrupt. Mm-hmm. And like... Sense of inevitability with a lot of voters. And she started, um, what was it? Uh, birtherism? Uh, her campaign and like the people under it, that's where birtherism comes oh from. Oh my for God, Obama. yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I have heard that. I'm, I'm not sure about that one, but I have, I think I've heard that one. Her campaign uh, spread it at least. I'm not sure if it originates with her. Yeah, but uh, regardless, I think that with people like Randy, you can definitely see that Randy is well to the left of the average establishment Democrat. But he's done better in that district than any con- congressional nominee in my lifetime, including that, because he just sort of ran... It's a person who knows the district. He loves the district. He loves the community. He's a part of the community. He's lived there his whole life. You know, he is Southeast Wisconsin. And I feel like if you can run a campaign like that, whether you're a progressive or a conservative or anything, because I do think there are some Republicans who do this well, um, like Fred Upton in Michigan, um, I think you'll win. So I think, yeah, being that established Democrat, unless you're in a super area. I've been saying that like, uh, the Democrats need to move a little more left on economic policy, especially to appeal to like the Hispanic voters in the Southwest. But I always hear back that like, if they're barely voting for Joe Biden, why would they vote for someone even further left? We need more centrism, more centrism. But I think that people don't want the centrist, like neoliberal establishment Democrats. They want something new. They want to actually see change in their communities. Which is why we exist. Because I don't think that, you know, I can tell you in Iowa, the last two statewide elections we've had have been completely winnable, completely winnable. But the National Party decided to give their money to the establishment choice and be lost. Okay, I'm going to try and wrap it up in about five or so minutes. It's been going a little long. Oh, well. So so do you think since you don't have like... Because like the the other big like grassroots movement I could think of is like the DSA. So since you don't have like the socialist tag onto your thing, 
onto your uh, organization, do you think you have a better chance of actually hand or, or uh, bringing uh, the establishment over once you yes. guys start gaming more traction? Yeah. 100%. And I say that... <laughs> Go ahead. Just, just anything to bring us to at least social democracy, at least a moderate social democracy. I think that, you know, we, we, we kind of avoid the labels just because, you know, in some communities we have help. And, um, you know, extra explanations usually don't bear fruit. But what I will say is I think because we're in this very interesting position yet where, you know, a lot of organizations like the one I run usually at the gate piss off the Democratic establishment or they piss off the progressive wing. We have done neither. So I think that because we can attract such a diverse coalition that we can more easily summon the political strength to get things where we want them to go. I think you might have a little tricky uh, task on your hands once you guys start advocating for policies, though. Though right now, I think just generally being a grassroots movement that connects with voters in specific areas, I do think you guys will have a lot of success with that. Just staying with those broader policies like um, broadband for rural communities that like who's going to disagree with that except for somebody who's like pure evil. Here's a little here's a tricky part with that, though, is are you thinking bringing private companies in or are you thinking like nationalized uh, Internet? Because I personally think we should be nationalizing Internet. Oh, I think definitely should be the government doing it. They're more efficient at it. I think, what was it? Somewhere in like Missouri or some of those big cities in the Midwest, a few of them have done it. Uh, I want to say Phoenix did it recently. Or th- no, that might've been something completely else. But they, they, they have shown to actually do it better than the private companies can. Because if you don't have good Wi-Fi, you can just elect somebody that wants to give you better Wi-Fi. So Precisely. they're kind of more accountable than, the, than these... Uh, companies that have basically just uh been conglomerate i had the word they they merged all, yeah, they, they merged all together to point where like comcast is in the north and they don't compete with spectrum and spectrums in the south and they don't compete with comcast i think people are very scared of nationalization because the socialism thing yeah but I don't know. That's why I've been trying to, whenever I try to sell people on like further left ideas, it's all about democracy. People love democracy. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what we need to be selling. Cause both sides money, money, democracy doesn't work. You cannot, you cannot elect people with your dollar or whatever. Yeah. I think, you know, the way I always describe it is like, I just try and, <laughs> I guess I just try and draw, draw it to common sense. I know that sounds sort of vacuous. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, you know, most of the United States was electrified by the REA in the last, you know, century. Um, you know, the government built highways for various reasons, mostly military, but, you know, we built the highways. And that has been an invariable boon on our economy, on our connectivity. So I think with you know, rural broadband, I think, you know, that is something that you know, can be done very efficiently by the government because I think they do have, when it comes to infrastructure programs, they have by far the best track record. And going back to policy a bit, I would say that we do not really have, you know, we have our own personal opinions and our platform, but I think broadly speaking for the next cycle, what we need to focus on because 
the Republican Party has such a staggering advantage in local politics, even in blue states, uh, or at least some blue states. We need to focus on what works, what resonates, what gets people moving. Yeah. So that's pro- that's probably kind of how I would end it here. As yeah, we- I, I think that's a that's a great goal. I think I really enjoyed talking with you, and I'd, I'd like to have you time. on. I'd like to have you on in uh, like six months to a year once you guys have had even more traction to uh, talk about your next steps. Oh, Absolutely. definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I've had a great time. Um, Anything you want to plug before you go? Yeah. So to anybody listening, you can check us out at rural underscore United on Twitter or United Rural Democrats dot org. Um, I will have all of those in the description of whatever platform you're listening to this on. Uh, just send me the links after we're done here. You got it. Um, go, please go check them out. Please go give the United Rural Democrats of America just a few dollars if you can, a little bit more if you can do that too. Um, but at least like check them out, talk to your friend about it. Um, well, it, it, this has been a great discussion. It's probably one of my favorites I've had so far. Yeah, this is my favorite discussion. Um, well, okay. Uh, we'll hopefully be on next week, guys. I cannot promise that. We'll be on next week. <laughs> I'll try. I have exams next week. Okay.